Hello, listeners. This is Joe Patrice, editor at Above the Law and co-host of Thinking Like a Lawyer. The episode you're about to hear, while hilarious and lighthearted, also involves a lot of adult content and graphic language. I understand that we almost always get the explicit language tag, but this goes to another level. We're like talking lots of bombs, a variety of letters. You just need to be aware of all this. I wasn't able to be on this episode. This is what happens when Ellie does things by himself. So the point is, it's probably not appropriate to listen to this in front of a younger audience. I don't know why you'd be listening to this show about lawyers in front of a group of children, but some of you sick freaks might do that. So if you're doing that, don't do that with this episode. Or do, I mean, I don't really care. The point is, our producers thought you should have a warning in advance, so consider yourself fair warned. With that said, hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hi, this is Ellie Mistal, and welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm your host. Our co-host, Joe Patrice, is locked in Western New York today, so I'm going to be flying solo. Um, but we do have our guest that's going to join us right away. He's Mark Rendazza, First Amendment lawyer extraordinaire. Uh, Mark, how you doing? Great. I'm so happy that you said it right. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. This is going to be a little uneven um, for our listeners uh, because Joe usually handles all of the bitch work um, while I drink and make funnies. So if it's a little bit weird, this is what happens when you, when you don't have the uh, old white guy in the office. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to start. I'm, I'm still going to do my, my grinding my gears thing, though, Mark. Um, I don't know if you've heard this, but usually at the beginning of the show, I rant off about something, and this week I've got something that, that I, I just need to get off my chest. Um, the thing that is bothering me most this week is populism, the very concept of populism. So I took a quiz this week, a PBS quiz, that essentially revealed that I live in an ivory bubble getting high off of my own farts. I accept I that. I saw that. You saw that, didn't you, Mark, right? I couldn't believe that I am in less of a bubble than you are. No, I am an elitist prick. And, and I fairness, am a man of the people. <laughs> Look, man, I have worked very hard to become this elitist prick. The thing that I take umbrage with, sir, umbrage, is the notion that my elitist prickdom somehow makes me unsympathetic to the common man, unsympathetic to the people. Part of being an elitist prick is that I have mastered the art of learning through reading, right? Books are like magic. More people should try them. Books allow me to understand what happens in a mind without actually having to go out and contract mesothelioma or whatever, you know, people are getting sick with these days. I mean, Mark, you read, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what I do for a living. Doesn't reading take you to far off places and help you understand people who are not like yourself? Oh, man, not like being there. <laughs> I mean, look, you can read books about certain things, but I mean, until you've been... Yeah, I, have a, I have a really good friend who we worked together on a barge underneath the Bayonne Bridge. And we spent six weeks in this barge hammering little squares through the rust in the barge to measure the thickness of the metal in it. And this barge had been used for delivering petroleum, battery acid, 
and sewage. So every time you hit the rust, a bubble might explode and you never knew what was going to come out. It might have been shit, acid, or gas. Were you in prison of some kind? No, man, this is just like, I used to be like merchant mariner guy. I used to be a sailor. So this is kind of (laughs) some of the crap I had to do. And you can read all the books you want about that. You don't know anything until you have spent six weeks in the dark just waiting for shit to spray in your eyes so that you can make a living. I mean... All right, so Mark is Robin Williams in Good Will Hunting, and I am Matt Damon. The, the, look, the point that I'm trying to make is that I believe in republicanism. S- small r, small, for love of God, small r. <laughs> but I believe, you, just made, you just gave me a heart attack, but okay. <laughs> but I believe in the concept that every person, every mouth-breathing idiot person in this great country deserves the inalienable right to scrawl their mark next to the expert they choose to run the country on their behalf. But populism, populism cuts against that. Populism most clearly expressed through Donald Trump, although I will say Bernie Sanders supporters have a little bit bit, bit of this too. This wave of populism, it rides on the notion that just anybody can do it. You don't need elites, you don't need experts, you don't need to acumen, you don't need to actually know anything. Anybody, pick the sweatiest used car salesman that you can find, and he can just get in there and fix things. Hey, it worked for eight years, didn't it? I mean, you're describing the Bush administration. We're still here. That didn't work. (laughs) Well, okay, well, I mean, yes, the plane is on fire, there's a hole in the side of it, and we're about to crash land into a jungle, but we're still flying. Yeah. I mean, I'm, not, I'm not saying I was a fan of George W. Bush, but I think this is a new thing that's grinding your gears. This is how this is how we got here. It's this week is really listening to Trump's foreign policy ridiculousness. Populism is going to ruin this country. Look, there's so, going to be a lot of foreign policy. Foreign policy is going to be great. When we have foreign policy, you know, foreign policy works great for everybody. And there's going to be great foreign policy. Exactly. Yes, that, that was that was that's his foreign policy. Vote for me. Look, Look, man, look, all I'm trying to say is this. When they come for me in my ivory tower with their pitchforks, rest assured, my last words are going to be, that's a trident, you idiot, not a pitchfork. That's what's grinding my gears today. All right, well, when they come for you, I will scream to them. I'm one of you, and he's cool, so please don't <laughs> Yeah, so Mark, we didn't have you on just to talk about populism, although we can definitely return to this point. We really wanted to have you on. I keep saying we as if I have a friend today because we wanted to— the royal we, the Ellie we. (laughs) We wanted to get your expertise about what's going on in the country, most most particularly the Gawker lawsuit that was decided when we're recording about last week ago, finding that Gawker was liable for $140 million for posting Hulk Hogan's sex tape. How did this happen? Oh, God. You know, this issue, it's funny. Journalists have been calling me from all over the world to talk about this. I was on drive time radio in Australia about this. And these guys didn't know anything about me. Like somebody just told them, yeah, this guy might might know something. And uh, and then we got into the fact that I represented porn companies and all that. And they they like lost their shit. You know, how did this happen? Well, you got a Florida jury. I mean, look at what a great setup. It's a Florida state jury. You've got Hulk Hogan is beloved. uh, And the further you get to, you know, the further south you get, the more beloved. You know, the more in monster truck populism land you get, the more this guy is a demigod. Now he's also, you get to Tampa, he's a local hero. So right there, the deck is totally stacked against Gawker. 
And, you know, I can say that as a litigator, when I prepare somebody for a deposition, I do try to explain to them that despite the fact that I am a sarcastic son of a bitch, you probably don't want to try sarcasm in your deposition. And that, you know, that statement that uh, Denton made that it would be newsworthy unless the subject was under the age of four, um, you know, which I didn't take it that he meant it seriously. It was obvious that it was intended as sarcasm to throw a barb at the uh, questioning attorney. But man, that didn't look good. So... You've got so, all so, that playing, but then also here's the real, you know, here's what I think is the undercurrent is that there was a time when you would say something was newsworthy and that was really up to the, we almost delegated that decision to the media, right? Because you've right. got the Boston Globe wants to write about something and they have a, a finite number of column inches and are they really going to bother to give, you know, a certain number of column inches or photo space to somebody's private sex life when it really isn't all that much of a matter of public concern? And the answer was no. And, and we had a nice equilibrium. Then all of a sudden you have the Internet with unlimited column space, unlimited broadcast time, unlimited anything. So the boundaries of that were no longer constrained by the newsroom. Now you also have... The fact that there was a time when journalism needed credibility and then it just, you have new rules. The question probably was never asked in Gawker's newsroom, hey, we've got this, uh, ask legal if we can run it. And then the rest of us, while he's researching that, should we run it? Nobody said, should we run it? The answer was, fuck yeah, let's run this. That didn't play well with the jury. And I think we may find more verdicts like this going forward, because as the notion of what is a matter of public concern drops precipitously, you've got your populist people out there, uh, you know, you got your regular guy out there wondering, at what point does this drop when I'm enough of a public figure that a, you know, a grainy sex tape of me and a, uh, you know, me and my maid and a donkey is going to turn up on the internet as a matter of public concern? See, I think that's the much bigger factor of what's going on here. I think a jury looks at that and they look at the era that we're living in with drone surveillance and, and hidden cameras and all this kind of stuff, and they're worried about themselves. When is their sex tape that they don't want out there going to drop? And so somehow they were able to, and this is the thing that really is amazing to me, somehow they were able to see themselves in Hulk freaking Hogan, more so than the journalists who were covering Hulk Hogan, Right. Right. They, they looked at Hulk Hogan, and for some reason, they thought, there but for the grace of God go I. Uh, yeah. And, you know, the, we, have, we have this notion in the United States that people think we have a right to privacy. And, you know, whether we have one or not is still a Penumbras. matter of debate. Penumbras. Yeah, well, look, you know, when you, I remember when I first read Brandeis and Warren's article on that, and I thought, you know, this is back before there was an internet. I mean, I'm that old, you know, I'm sitting there reading the right to privacy and I'm thinking, you scumbags, you know, because this was not really <laughs> about them talking about how, well, the average guy has a right to be left alone and we have a right to a private life, which is something that we're all kind of scratching our heads right now and asking, don't we? This was at a time when you know, the masses were starving and Brandeis and Warren's Boston Brahmin families were upset 
that people are peeking their noses and, and news cameras into windows. You know, people are looking in their windows and writing about the fact that they're having Great Gatsby-style parties while everybody else is eating rats and shit. And, you know, I read that and I had such a disgust for Brandeis and Warren in trying to come up with this, this new right that would really have only benefited the elite because nobody cared what the guy in the tenement down the street was doing on Friday night. But now they do. You know, now this can become, now you can become Brandeis and Warren. Now we can all sit there and feel that way. But, you know, as, as much of a free speech advocate as I am, I'm not an absolutist. I mean, I think absolutism is the most intellectually lazy thing that you can rely upon in coming up with your positions. And so I look at how, say, Europe does this and where there's a co-equal right to privacy, and maybe there is some right to a private life that should exist alongside the First Amendment. I'm comfortable with that idea. So where I should be a natural person screaming about the Hulk Hogan uh, verdict, and I think people usually expect me to, in part, I'm looking at it saying either it was the right thing to do or at least looking at Gawker and saying, you know, this is why we can't have nice things. And, and if this means that we have to curtail, we have to look at maybe a new firewall on First Amendment rights created by this kind of everything is a matter of public interest, even a private tryst because of nothing more than Hulk Hogan talked about his dick. I'm just not buying that. So as a journalism ethics thing, if I were in that newsroom, I probably would have said, I don't see a reason for us to run this. I don't see a reason for us to run the entire minute. I mean, if you want to say this exists and here's a still of it that shows that it's authentic, maybe. But even then, you know, come on, man. There was a time when John F. Kennedy could bang Marilyn Monroe and the press knew that maybe we were more interested in the Cuban Missile Crisis than, you know, whether Marilyn Monroe was on her back in the Oval Office. You know, but that all really went away with, you know, with Gary Hart and our decision that, uh, the Miami Herald's decision that it had the next Watergate story with him. And then the, the race has just been to the bottom. And if people are fed up, um, you know, I, I'm a little bit with them. Did it feel good getting that, that off chest there? Because <laughs> my response is obviously going to be, are you fucking kidding me? Are you <laughs> kidding me with this? Are you, I, 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 I'll start here. While the New York Times might have thought that we cared more about the Cuban Missile Crisis than Marilyn Monroe banging John F. Kennedy, I promise you, Marilyn Monroe banging John F. Kennedy would have gotten more clicks, would have gotten more hits. I promise you that today more people understand better about Monroe and Kennedy than they do about anything that happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? So I guess my issue here is not that we should have some understanding of what is news and what isn't news and not everything can be news. It's who gets to decide. And Hell, if I want that to be Alito and Clarence Thomas deciding, telling me what the news is. If anything, my readers should tell me what the news is. And in Gawker's defense, and look, I feel like I am duty-bound to say that I probably would not have posted the video. I, get, I actually get really annoyed at other journalists who kind of sit on top of a high horse talking about living in an ivory tower, um, about how they would never have posted such a video when they work for organizations that never get a sex tape. I work for an organization, I've seen some sex tapes, and I have had to make a journalistic decision 
about whether or not to post a sex tape. It's actually a hard decision to make. I feel like I have the right as a news person to make that decision way more so than a court or a congressperson who has literally never had to kind of think through what that means. Sure. And look, I don't think we're at odds in our view here, but do we at least agree that there is, there is some right to privacy, there is some right to be left alone, and the equilibrium that we once had has been greatly disturbed. And, you know, it may be, it may be a matter of jury verdicts are going to be the place where that decision gets made. It won't get up to Clarence Thomas and, and Sam Alito because it's really not a new theory. You know, it's really not, this is not novel. This is simply just an application of old common law to new facts. I am comfortable with the common law maybe drawing that line for us. And at some point, you know, you may have made that decision and, uh, you know, my respect to you for it, that you made that decision based on a matter of personal ethics. But not everybody's going to do that. And maybe if the decision is, okay, should we do it? Can we do it? Is it newsworthy? I think it is. All right, you realize we're going to get sued and uh, this may cost us. And then you make that little additional decision you know, because it is it really a matter of public concern, the actual video of Hulk Hogan banging his friend's wife? Why is that newsworthy over the actual story itself? I understand it gets clicks. You know, I, I could probably get a lot of clicks if I put up a, a thing saying, I, you know, I've got a, I got a video of Ellie banging, you know, whoever. But it, right. does so, that so make I it newsworthy? Have, so I guess I have two questions to that. One... And I'm glad you brought me into it because I like thinking about things through the lens of my own self. Um, what? <laughs> when did you say that there is a huge distinction between me, who is at best a limited purpose public person, and Hulk Hogan, who's freaking Hulk Hogan, right? In the elite circles that I travel in, people are much more impressed that I know you than they would be if I said I also know Hulk Hogan. Okay. Fair enough. I, look, I'm flattery will get you everywhere. I, <laughs> but then the other question then becomes, if you're going to say uh, it's the Nick Denton pictures or it didn't happen issue. If you're going to say that it's okay to talk about the sex tape that you saw, if you're going to say that it's okay to describe the sex tape that you saw, given that we live in 2016, where's the line between it's okay to talk about it, it's okay to describe it, it's okay to put a picture of it up but a whole minute of sex, of, of, of ramming sex, that's too far. A minute. What about 45 seconds? What about 33 seconds? I mean, like, that becomes, I think, a line that, and I agree with you that absolutes are bad, but that just becomes a line that you can't draw. Yeah, I don't know where to draw it either. I mean, I, I guess I know that if we said you can never publish a sex tape, well, that's wrong. But also, you know, is it okay for Gawker to publish the sex tape of, you know, let's take a, you know, a, a even of you. A, okay, you, you know, you may humbly say you're a F-list celebrity, but it would certainly be somewhat newsworthy. I don't know. You know, you're, you're screwing uh, uh, Trump's wife. A white person. There you go. <laughs> Ellie walks in, where do white women at? And, uh, and then we got the video, and, and that's the title of it. You know, I just don't see your private sex life being newsworthy, even if it was you with, uh, you know, with like a, a judicial clerk from the Ninth Circuit. I mean, 
I don't, I just, I'm not seeing it. And if maybe that is okay, well then let's go down another level. You know, at what point is somebody well known enough that their private sexual affairs are a legitimate matter of public concern that outweighs their right to privacy? And I think our biggest problem is we just don't know what a right to privacy is here because it has always been this, you know, it, it's based on an 1899 law review article and penumbras <laughs> and crap like that where nobody's really been willing to say it really is a right or it really isn't a right. But that was a lot less scary in, you know, 1990, you know, that's because in 1990 it was like, okay, yeah, maybe my right to privacy isn't there, but the all-seeing eye isn't going to look at me anytime soon. Now the panopticon is everywhere. You know, it is, the eye is watching all of us at all times. And at any given moment, you're the guy fucking the pumpkin in the alley, you know, because you've had too many drinks, and then you're on the video. Or at that moment, somebody thinks that your sex tape is somehow interesting enough to, to want to broadcast it. So sure, we got to find somewhere. Sure, but our rights, our rights can't be based on personal embarrassment and the level to which we experience it, right? I often, and I don't see how you're putting me on the right of so many fucking issues, but I often, <laughs> I, I often, you know, talk about the scourge of cyberbullying. And one of the things I like to say is that cyber, the medium is different than it used to be. But... In 1975, you could get your ass kicked out of the playground and everybody would know about it and everybody would point and laugh and stare and whatever at you. Now that happens on Facebook. That's not different. That doesn't change the nature of the thing. And so similarly with what you're talking about, just you're right that it was a different world in 1990. The sex tape actually had to be on a video cassette, I believe, or something. You know, The medium has changed, but the actual violation, if there is a violation shouldn't have changed at all. I guess, you know, but the thing is, the physical limitations used to make sure that we didn't have to ask these questions very often. And that's, that's the problem. You know, it was like saying that we needed to have a, you know, do we need an assault gun ban in, uh, you know, in... 1850. Well, of course not, because, I mean, I don't know, maybe my science is wrong, but I don't uh. even know if the Gatling gun was invented by then. But when, when you had nothing but muzzle-loaded muskets, uh, there was no need to have that conversation. Nobody had to say, golly, uh, should we have some kind of a limit? How do you think the, uh, the appellate courts are going to—you were saying that you don't see, that you don't exactly know where the line is. Where do you think the appellate courts are going to draw the line? It's a good question. You know, I don't, as much as I may feel, you know, I, I'm really talking about my personal beliefs here, but if I look at the law, now that's another story. And I don't see any... Things that don't happen in juries on Florida. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, now I, I don't see any legal support for my personal feelings on this. So I think that as a matter of First Amendment law, your position is absolutely right. And that is probably the position I would have to take if I were a judge. Uh, I'd have to say there is no, you know, there really is no co-equal right to privacy. If it is at all a matter of public interest about a public figure, then, yeah, they can make that decision. And the law as it stands 
I think may wait, you know, just say that the market must make that decision. If everybody is so offended by the fact that Gawker decided to do this, well then, we will all of course organize to not click on Gawker and to use no follow every time we link to them, right? Right. That's at least what someone is going to say as they're sitting in their bubble at the 11th circuit. Or maybe yep. not. You know, well, this isn't going to the 11th circuit. This is going to uh, the second DCA in Florida and then to the Florida Supreme Court. God, anything can happen at either of those places. So don't, <laughs> I'm not making Vegas odds on that. It's just, as a person who kind of works in this business, it's just, it's amazing to me how people will say one thing with their mouth and click a whole different thing with their hand. And so, the, so I, I do anticipate that the argument is going to be, well, if we don't like this stuff, we should just not click on it. But regardless of our differences in the, in the viewpoint here, I think we both agree that that is not an effective practical solution to the problem. No, it's uh, not. And this is why I get back to my statement before. This is why we can't have nice things. Because at some point, people are going to say they've had enough and they're going to demand a right to privacy. And my, you know, my concern about that is once you open up the hood of the Constitution and you say, let's start tinkering with some of this shit, God knows what we're going to wind up with. I mean, we may wind up with a right to privacy and a right to Twinkies. I, I just don't know what comes out of messing with it. I hear people scream about the fact that, you know, in Europe, you don't have, I'm kind of on both sides of the Atlantic all year long. So I work in that ecosystem. And you know, my, my absolutist friends back here say, oh my God, you know, in France, you can't even say the Holocaust didn't happen. And they have this ridiculous right to be forgotten thing that's just so counter to free speech. Yes. You know, and, and then I land in- uh, It's the worst law in Europe. Well, but it isn't. You get there and you say, well, of all the time I've lived in Europe, I have never felt the oppressive boot of the state on the back of my neck, you know, at any point, because I couldn't run out in the street and say the Holocaust never happened. Let's kill all the Jews. That just doesn't- Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. To be clear, I was saying that the right to be forgotten is the worst law in Europe, not the anti-Holocaust denying law. Okay. Well, well similarly- you know, the, the right to be forgotten, you know, I think is actually a pretty bad, it's a bad distillation of what it really is. And I think the best example of that is the actual case that made it into the press about it, where, you know, it was this guy who had a, a what, a foreclosure from 16 years ago, and it's his number one Google result. And Google, why you can't have nice things, was so arrogant about it that he felt like he had to bring this to the data protection authorities, which agreed with him. And then he tried to get the stories about the case suppressed because all they did was blow his 16-year-old foreclosure back into the press, but it was about a matter of global importance, so it didn't apply. So he, he actually is the alpha and the omega of this theory that you have a right to a private life. But once, you, you know, once you're put onto the world stage, once you're put onto a larger stage than that, no. And I have not seen in the free speech work I'm doing there, and I actually am doing a significant amount of it, that this has caused any great suppression of anything that we might want to broadcast or report on. I'm actually on a board, and we have a meeting at the end of April of lawyers from all over the world who are consulting on this with the French government and the EU parliament. And I was brought on as the foil, as the guy to say, whoa, whoa, hold on. You're going a little too far here because I'm the, I'm the crazy American with his outlandish views on freedom of expression. And 
although I've had to play that part quite a bit, it wasn't every single notion that they have. So I don't know. I, I'm just not seeing that as being, I haven't seen it become the sky is falling situation that a lot of us thought it was the day it happened. And so far, there have been so many people who have tried to use this to suppress their legitimate news about them. I mean, yes, guards who were at Auschwitz tried to use this to get information about them being guards at Auschwitz off the internet. And the answer has always been, nope, that's newsworthy. That's a matter of public concern. On the other hand, you know, you, you took a crap on the floor of an Arby's 20 years ago on a drunken dare. And, uh, you know, may, maybe that isn't all that newsworthy. But again, who gets to this? Man, you've you you done change, man. You done. Who gets to decide what? <laughs> Whether or not you taking a crap at Arby's is newsworthy or not? Maybe I'm thinking about hiring you to work in my Arby's. At which point, I deserve to have a full record of the news. Because here's the thing: it's not like again the medium, the medium has changed, but the thing is still the same. A hundred years ago, I could go to a library and go on microfiche and find everything I needed to know about a certain subject because the historical record was preserved. Of course. What the right to be forgotten is. is doing, it's not preserving the historical record in any kind of technologically reasonable way. That's incorrect because this guy, his foreclosure still existed in the newspaper records. In fact, he tried to get it off of Google and off the newspaper records. And remember, Google had the option of saying it was a news provider rather than an information content handler or whatever it was called under the regulation. Google made that decision to be one or the other, and I don't know why, but it made that decision. The newspaper itself, uh, you know, Mr. Garcia tried, uh, or Gonzalez, he tried to get the uh, data protection authorities to also tell the newspaper that it had to pull it down off of its website. And they found they didn't have that right. So the primary source still has it. And yeah, uh, 20, 30 years ago, I remember being in cellars looking through microfilm for hours upon hours. It really, you know, it just took me a little longer, in fact, a lot longer than it takes me now with a Google search. But I cannot find the Taco Bell down the street without Google, right? <laughs> if it's not on Google, it might as well not exist. Well, I, you know, maybe that shouldn't be the case. If Google is, at some point, you know, people ask that there's this saying that if you're getting a service, you're not paying for it, you are usually the product. And at some point, every single bit of your life may become digitized in some way into some product that somebody is selling. And that's what Google's doing. I don't really see a problem. And, and this is, look, for me, I'm fucked on all this stuff, okay? I've put myself out there enough that I don't know how I would ever get away with anything under the right to be forgotten being suppressed. You know, unless I decided to like, go join a monastery for 20 years and then come back out and say, hey, you know, things have changed. Right. It is too late for me as well. Yeah, but when we look out there at the regular fucking people and I see that and I deal with people who will, who will call me from time to time and I say, look, man, I, I empathize with you on a personal level, even though I'm telling you what the law is and the law says you're screwed. But on a personal level, I get it. You know, you have been running a sub shop in Terre Haute, Indiana for the past 20 years 
and you had one drunk driving accident, and now all of a sudden, like, that is the only thing that the entire world will probably ever know about you forever. And I think that's bullshit. But you live in the United States of America, pal, so uh, you're going to either need a revolution or a constitutional convention to change it. And, you know, and maybe the ultimate bargain that we've made to allow freedom of expression in an unfettered manner with no concern of the right to privacy, perhaps that is the best bargain. I'm just saying that when I'm on the other side of the Atlantic living under a different bargain, I have not yet found that to be terrible. In fact, I've found it to be somewhat nice when I get calls from somebody in, who I'm dealing with my Italian office and they say, yeah, look at this guy. Let's get this guy a break. And they managed to do it with one takedown notice to Google. But, you know, then they bounce something off of me where they say, well, look, Google rejected this. I say, well, of course they did. Why wouldn't they? This guy was, the, was a minister of parliament for 15 years. Okay, uh, okay, okay. Before I let you go, before you start um, defending the Vatican's right to have certain other things forgotten. Uh, no way, man. Let, Fuck them, you know? Look, you're a priest who fucks little kids. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's a matter of public concern for no matter right. how long. And who gets to decide? I don't know. My only point is that there are goal lines. Now, where do we put them? You know, do we put them like in the CFL with a 25-yard end zone or do we put them like in the NFL with a 10-yard end zone? I I'm not really sure. I'm not smart enough to be running that show. Can we at least agree that we are both happy-ish that the loss for Gawker, that the suit against Gawker happen under privacy law as opposed to defamation and libel? That, that the worst thing would have been if, in the words of our future warlord Donald Trump, it would be if the courts had opened up the libel laws to make it, dare I say, a more European way of suing people for defamation and libel. 100%. I'm with you on that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, you, you might have read my, I, I don't know. I, I did I, in I fact, a, yes. I, I wrote a CNN column on this. Yes. I mean. Trying to lead you there, yeah. Yeah, Trump's, oh, thanks. Well, Trump's views on should we have more European-style libel laws, I think, are absolutely horrendous. You know, and, and there is, in every other country that has looked at this, every country that I have ever looked at a defamation suit in has at some point or another considered New York Times versus Sullivan and rejected it, uh, whether it's Canada in Hill versus Church of Scientology or, um, you know, I did a case in Zambia two years ago and the Zambian courts, it was really neat reading Zambian legal opinions and finding them completely, you know, analyzing New York Times versus Sullivan and saying, but, you know, not in our tradition. We are not permitting, you know, we're not going to go quite that far. But I mean, New York Times versus Sullivan, I think is the, let me put it this way. If they had phone sex lines where sultry voices read off the text of New York Times versus Sullivan, I would sit in my house every day just masturbating, listening to it. That's how much <laughs> I fucking love New York Times versus Sullivan. Tell the people why. Tell the people why. Look, it, it, is, it is just, if you don't have that, the balance, like this is what, you want populism, man. This gives us First Amendment populism. This puts, you know, us when no matter who we are, on a level along with the most powerful, because the most powerful, they have access to the press. Donald Trump farts and it's front page news. If you say something bad about Donald Trump, 
you'd better have something to back it up because he can call a press conference and just overwhelm you with his access to the media. This levels the playing field. I mean, New York Times versus Sullivan would never have been decided today. There's no way at all. I'm so glad that it is such a venerable case because in 1964, it was just... I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. So just in case you're a law student or haven't gotten to this, New York Times versus Sullivan is what allows me to call Donald Trump a bigot without getting sued. Pretty much. That's how I I put it. Well, no, even better than that, it allows you to write a factual news story about Donald Trump and maybe get something a little bit wrong in it, okay? It means you don't need to have an A-plus in your fact-checking when it's a matter of public concern or a public figure. Because if you needed that, if you had to sit there, you'd be on the phone with me every 15 minutes saying, Mark, oh, geez, can we say this? Can we say that? I don't have exact proof of this. I don't have exact proof of that. His fingers look like sausages, but I don't know if they are sausages. What you would have is you'd have Singapore, where you have the ruling party in Singapore allows a certain number of opposition candidates to get through every year. But if you run against an incumbent and you say, vote for me, I can do better, well, then the incumbent sues you for defamation for implying that they didn't do the best job that could be done. And that's enough. That's enough to shove you down into bankruptcy. You know, and Singapore has, has, has like the most civilized system of censorship and thought control of any regime in history. They don't kick down your front door and drag you out and beat you with truncheons there. They just sue you into oblivion and it works because you don't have New York Times versus Sullivan. You know, Trump is, uh, this is the one thing about him that really scares the living shit out of me is that he has wielded his ability to to file defamation suits willy-nilly in the past in such an irresponsible manner. And now he's actually making tantamount to a campaign promise that he's going to make sure that him and the very small sliver of the elite that New York Times versus Sullivan allows us to criticize, he's going to take that away from us. And look, it scares me even more that I think that the liberals would be okay with that. You know, Elena Kagan has said she thinks New York Times versus Sullivan goes too far. And so in an environment where You know, now it's like we don't have a divide where it's all us liberals saying we need freedom of expression. And then we got the Bush administration saying, well, fuck that. There ought to be limits on freedom. Um, It's not that anymore. You know, when when you have a a closing of the loop with a Trump appointee and Kagan saying, yeah, you got a point. That's not a good thing, man. That is not a good thing. So. Yeah, anybody yeah. wants to call me up and read New York Times versus Sullivan to me in a, in a hot voice, I'll pay $2.99 a minute for that. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> I'm going to have to leave it there. I'm, I'm glad we were able to come to some general hot accord about the importance of defamation law. That is our podcast for today. Mark Rendazza, again, uh, thank you so much for being on. I am Ellie Mistal. The podcast is called Thinking Like a Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. You can go on iTunes and like us there, as I've been told by people that that is uh, good for us and for me. Um, I'm also available on Above the Law, and you can reach me at LENYC on Twitter. Um, Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye, guys. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, 
please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.